Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, of course, uh, taping virtually and away from the radio studio days. Hopefully we'll be back in there sometime soon. Thank you very much for all of those who responded to our fundraising. CIET 89.5 is the last alternative radio station uh, listener supported and university supported in Toronto. So very important, uh, especially these days to keep that alternative to mainstream media voice going. So thank you very much last week for your contributions. Uh, keep them coming if you haven't already. Uh, they are taken, of course, online. I'm delighted today to have two uh, incredibly special guests for National Indigenous History Month here in Canada. Um, I have probably the best spokespeople I can think of to speak about uh, the way the uprising, the anti-Black racism uprising, is also, in a sense, the anti-Indigenous racism uprising here in this country. I have, uh, first of all, Archbishop uh, Mark McDonald. He is the bishop, has been the bishop for many years for the Indigenous Canadian Anglicans. He served before that as the Bishop of Alaska. He served as uh, the president of the World Council of Churches since 2013. He's a published author. Uh, welcome, Mark. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you. And we have Reverend uh, Evan Smith. Reverend, for six years now, has served uh, with the Toronto Urban Native Ministry. It is an outreach of the Anglican and the United Church. Uh, Evan identifies as queer and non-binary. And Evan's work consists of dealing really on the front lines with street-involved people, those incarcerated, those in hospitals, uh, all of those marginalized. She has done a lot of other academic work. And so welcome, Evan, to the Radical Reverend Show. Thanks, Sherry. So let's start right in with you. Evan, I'll start with you. Uh, how in the world did you ever become Christian? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the million dollar question. Um, so I, I was raised in a Christian household. So I was actually raised in the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is now Community of Christ. Um, raised not in a super strict religious household, although my dad, two of my brothers, and my sister-in-law are all priests in that denomination now. Um, but was raised, I mean, going to church camp, going to church on Sundays. And when I, I came out at to my parents at 17, um, that's also when I sort of came out in the church and was basically thrown out by my uh, youth minister at the time, uh, locked in a room for eight hours, um, experienced uh, ex-gay ministries um, at a conference in New York City or New York State. Um, and so I left the church. I left it quickly uh, and became probably one of the toughest atheists out there wouldn't step foot in a church building, believed that the church was nothing but evil. Um, and then was in New Orleans doing relief work after Hurricane Katrina and got invited to go to church, um, a Southern Black Baptist church. And I knew better than to say no to an invitation um, from someone in a different community. So I went to church and even though I found a lot of the theology really problematic, um, I realized that I was missing that sense of community, um, that, you know, belief that there was something bigger than us out there. 
and I uh, started going to the Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship where I discovered that I loved the music and was not a fan of most of the messages on Sunday. Um, it was just a lot of sin and hate and um, guilt and had a calling from God. I heard this voice in my head that said, this isn't what I intended, go and preach love. And I was, I mean, I wasn't really sure I was a Christian at that point. And I was just like, no, this is, no, no, not doing this. And it just kept happening and happening. And within 10 weeks, I was admitted on early admissions to Emmanuel College at U of T and had only been in the United Church several times. I had a friend who was clergy. Uh, and from there, I mean, developed a, a faith that was based more on liberation theology and Indigenous spirituality, um, learned a lot about my own history. Uh, and here I am, I guess, 10, 10-ish years later, 12 years later, uh, doing what I never would have imagined doing in my early 20s. Well, thank you for doing it. Mark, uh, how did you become a Christian? Well, I was raised in a, a home where uh, Christianity was, was a nominal presence, and uh, my my parents brought us there from time to time, but it was a home where there was a, a lot of uh, drinking, a lot of other things going on that were not uh, helpful or wholesome. And uh, and when the Vietnam War happened, my church that I had been involved with was uh, very pro-war, and I felt that, that that was not possible for me ethically and 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 uh, uh, in any other way uh, and, and politically as well and and I uh, uh, became a follower of, of, uh, of Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King and uh, became a, a draft resistor in the United States and uh, and uh, became involved in political nonviolent groups uh, and uh, I uh, it was there that I, I became conscious of the, the fact uh, through through Gandhi that uh, Jesus was uh, his primary uh, exemplar of, of, of that life and uh, revisited uh, my 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 faith and uh, around that time uh, two other things happened uh, uh, there there was uh, a lot of people who were part of the counterculture movement at that time uh, in the late 60s, early 70s that, that were becoming radically committed to the Christian faith. And that uh, inspired me. And uh, I also came under the influence of, a, of an African-American uh, Baptist church and its ministry that I had come in contact with primarily through the political work that I was involved with. And those things kind of swirled together. We, I became a part of a non-denominational fellowship and uh, we had a number of uh, Christian homes. That, that was uh, uh, very good, but the, 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 the cap of all of it was that um, I attended uh, the church that I had grown up with and realized that my rejection of it was largely because I didn't have the capacity to understand what it was saying, and 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 uh, I uh, through uh, this is the thumbnail sketch. Uh, uh, I I became involved with it, and uh, 
it was uh, uh, I went to seminary and started work, but uh, because of my background, I was able to connect with a number of elders who uh, indigenous elders who were uh, beginning to to try to form an urban indigenous community in Portland, Oregon, and uh, and so I would say I was born again again by hearing the good news uh, 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 through the, the, the eyes and hearts of, of the elders. And uh, uh, that really has, has been what has deepened me and committed me to um, uh, the Christian faith in, in, a, in, a, in a great way. So I would say, uh, you know, God's strength, mercy, and goodness, uh, as I've experienced it through other people, has uh, changed my my heart and mind and life, and I, I hope my uh, uh, approach to Christian faith. Just a question, Mark. So, when you were a draft resistor for uh, the Vietnam War, so did you come to Canada at that point? When did the cross-border no. journey start for you? <laughs> no, I. Well, my th- my my father's a Canadian, so I had already always been connected, and uh, and I I. I did not uh, register for the draft. And uh, so I was waiting to get arrested all the time. And I didn't uh, register until I was about to come across the border uh, to go to seminary. So um, uh, I, I knew I would be arrested if I, if I, if I didn't. So, uh, so uh, uh, I, my way of resistance was, was to uh, not, not participate with the, the draft system in the United States. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show. Of course, we're on CIUT on Mondays, four to five. Uh, but you might also be listening on podcast. We're on a number of podcast stations, so that will be up forever. Uh, if you're just tuned in, you are listening to a special really framed around the National Indigenous History Month in this country. And you're listening to, just listen to Archbishop Mark McDonald from the Anglican slash Episcopal Church. And Reverend Evan Smith is our other guest working in a cross-listing for Toronto Urban Native Ministry for the Anglican and the United Church. So Evan, I'm going to go back to you now because uh, you know, on the left, uh, <laughs> just your stories about becoming Christian is pretty radical. <laughs> pretty radical to be Christian these days, but it's particularly yeah. radical to be Christian coming from an indigenous background because, you know, the first things that we think of now on the left in Canada when we think of indigenous are colonization, residential schools, all of these horrors that the church generally. Um, was intimately and intrinsically involved in. Um, So how do you reconcile that history um, with your history, Evan? I think that for me, um, what what came first in my faith journey was trying to reconcile uh, being a queer and trans person with, with the faith and with the damage that church institutions um, and different theologies had done. And, and sort of what came out of that was this feeling that, um, that as LGBT people, we were often told um, that the church wasn't a place for us, that we didn't belong, that we weren't deserving of God's love. Um, and, and I think that, I mean, so many of us in the community believe that. 
And for me, I just got tired of it. I got tired of, uh, in that case, straight people telling me who I was and what, what my community was worthy of and what we had access to. And so as an adoptee, um, I didn't have a lot of history sort of as an Indigenous person in the church or like that, that I guess, like knowledge base. I hadn't experienced it. But as I learned more about my own history um, and I mean, went to university and discovered um, more of the history of the treatment of Indigenous people in Canada, um, it became quickly apparent. I mean, the damage that the church had done. So I was also coming to the church with, with that knowledge. Um, but I, it was so easy for me to see the exact same parallels because the same things that were happening to LGBT communities have always happened historically to Indigenous communities. Um, and so for me, it was the same thing. Why do white settler populations and Christians and those in power get to tell our communities what we believe, how we can believe it, and what we should have access to? Um, and so for me, those two are intrinsically linked. I don't think that um, that I can separate them. And I mean, it, it makes for an interesting intersection because there's obviously a lot of racism and prejudice in the LGBT community. And there's also a lot of homophobia in indigenous communities. And so for me, it's always been about, you know, getting back to the message of, of Christ's love, of the value of life, of the value of people, um, and really challenging the institutions who, who have stepped in and said, you know, you're not worthy. Say a bit more about discovering your origins as an adoptee, because that that's a journey right there in and of itself. Talk about that a bit. Yeah. So, um, so interestingly, I mean, I grew up really close to the Six Nations Reserve, like 10 minutes away and grew up uh, with the experience of um, being beaten up for being Indigenous by the white kids at school and being beaten up for being white by the Indigenous kids. And so I always just lived in, the, in this space of limbo where I, I had questions, I suspected things, um, and, and honestly was really re resilient to them. I think I had, or resistant to them, um, because I had seen uh, the struggles that, I mean, so many of my friends were from Six Nations and I'd seen the struggles that they grew up with. I saw the the racism, the ongoing things that they were forced to deal with. <clears throat> um, and so when I, when I met my birth family and I found out more about my history, um, I mean, first of all, there was a lot of internalized racism. There was a lot of half truths. And, and so for me, I had to um, it took me a long time to make peace with the fact that I may never know everything. And I think that that's a really hard thing, especially in a community so rooted in our history and the importance of that history, which I mean is undeniable. Um, I was really lucky because uh, I've always I've always spoken truthfully about what I do know, what I don't know, and have been embraced in the community. Um, I've worked with you know numerous elders and knowledge keepers who have worked with me on my own personal healing, but also, <clears throat> sorry, to, to help me to lead in a way that, um, that helps other people on that healing journey. Because I think so many adoptees and 60 Scoop survivors and even residential school survivors struggle with who we are, um, how we belong in the community, um, the way that we were raised versus the, the way that other folks were raised. Um, and for me, a lot of my, the majority, I would say, of my teachings around 
traditional indigenous virtuality actually came from the elders within the church. Um, a lot of it came from out of the community. I think later, like I started to pursue um, elders and knowledge keepers who were who were not part of the United Church. Um, but it was it was really the elders in the church who who taught me about indigenous spirituality, who taught me about being proud of that and, and how it can walk hand in hand with Christianity, because I think that's something um, that many people struggle with. I mean, I still struggle with it in some ways. And, and Mark, uh, to, to turn it to you, um, maybe talk about your own background. One of the things that, and I just wanted to raise this um, so that I don't forget to raise it, but um, when we were on a panel together at Redeemer, church uh, a while back at Bill Phipps, you and I, and you uh, said something that I've carried with me that was actually quite, uh, it was educational, I had no idea, about the percentage of Christians in the Indigenous community in Canada. Um, do you want to say a bit about that, but also about your own connection there with uh, the Indigenous background? Sure. Um, well, I think uh, I was, I, I don't think there was a that very many moments in my life when I didn't recognize that there was a, a, a vast gulf between what uh, Christian institutions did and said and the message of Jesus. I think that uh, the, those two things are profoundly different in, in, in many respects, um, which, which is not to say that uh, either side of that are, are devoid of the other side, but, but uh, I, I, uh, my experience has been largely in uh, remote areas um, and uh, with 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 people who, uh, for instance, uh, uh, the Navajo people who have very much influenced my thought and life. I would I would say that I'm. Uh, spiritually and religiously Christian and philosophically uh, uh, try to, to live a Navajo way of life. Um, they have been very little influenced by Christian institutions. And, uh, um, and, and uh, well, well, mostly indirectly, which is not to say that Christian institutions haven't caused pain in that cause, in that situation. But, uh, so, um, you know, the elders that I've encountered in my life, you know, they don't say this in as many words, but they, they often observe, make observations like, you know, does, does the church read this book? And uh, um, does it have any kind of uh, contact with it? I was very much uh, uh, moved by uh, the, Guichin, the great Guichin prophet, Albert, who lived uh, in the last half of the uh, 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And uh, he famously said, the way of the white man leads to death and the way of Jesus leads to life. Um, he saw those two things as being radically different. And uh, he, uh, uh, and I, I think it's, it's important to understand that uh, other than, uh, well, a lot of the communities that I deal with, the church as an institutional presence ended a long, long time ago. And most of the people who live there have no remembrance, 
when the white church was still an ascendant part of their communities. Um, so I would say institutionally, all of the main nine denominations, including mine, have abandoned uh, uh, indigenous communities. Um, as, as one person said to me a number of years ago, yeah, you, you guys, you told us I thought you were bad, and now when somebody dies, where are you? And um, so I think it's, it's, it's what, what you see uh, in indigenous communities, rural indigenous communities is very different. And I think the most important thing I could say, there's a lot I could say about that, is that indigenous people have been their own agents in dealing with Christianity. And it is a liberal and a conservative white lie that says that they haven't. And unfortunately, many indigenous people have, have accepted that reasoning and thought as well. And the reality is that indigenous people have a vibrant and vital expression of Christian faith that is quite apart from the, uh, the white institutions that have created so much havoc and, 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 and pain uh, across the land. And so um, it is, I think, uh, very, very important. Um, both, the, both the white left and the white right uh, in the churches and out of the churches portray indigenous people as the hapless victims of Christian faith. There was much more a profound and deep shaping of the Christian message, which is recognized in as broad a, a, a differences as the political uh, uh, things that have recognized the wisdom of indigenous um, 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 philosophy and cosmology in relationship to the environment and laudato si from the, from the Pope. There's this recognition that this thing that these institutions tried to destroy committed genocide against that these have contained and and preserved by their own strength of will a wisdom that may save the planet and so I, I would have to put it in those terms that the way we see these things is not simple and the reality that has emerged out of this is much more profound than than we would than than we would would like to give a room for so I think we are just in the beginning uh, of understanding it. So I, somebody asked me to speak on what is the future of the of the church in indigenous communities, and I said before we get a new future, we have to get a new past. Uh, we have to understand what really happened, and what really happened has been articulated through white academics and white uh, Christian people. I don't think either of them have a clue what happened. Thank you for that, um, such wisdom. Um, I want to uh, just point out, I mean, I think listeners would be quite astounded because I remember you quoting some stats and I, I simply remember that there were over 40% of Indigenous in Canada identified as Roman Catholic, some 29% identified as Anglican. I mean, in, in, in effect, there were more people identifying as Christian in Indigenous communities than there were in white communities at the end right. of the day, which, which I found really, really interesting. Um, uh, do you want to say a little bit more about 
about that? I mean, because that is surprising. Yeah, I think that people who uh, spend time on reserve, like I do, find that there is a, an astonishing reality, and that is that uh, the, the vibrancy and vitality of the Christian message and, and practice uh, in these communities, and uh, and it, it is uh, it is simply astonishing, and that that is that uh, you know. Uh, in, in this bizarre thing, uh, but I, I think God loves it, um, is that the, the people who have been most hurt by the institution of Christianity are the, the ethnic group that preserves it in its greatest vitality. Yeah. Which is a perfect segue to talking about what I'm calling, and not just me, but calling the uprising, which is this phenomenal global movement um, against anti-Black racism that of course you know was kicked off not only uh by the death of george floyd but also in our own country regis's death and not far from where i live but of course many indigenous deaths too at the hands of the often rcmp among others um so how talk about that movement which is already i mean it's already been revolutionary in terms of its impact on police uh you were you know I thought I would never live to see uh, a motion of any sort to defund the police in any way hit our Toronto City Council, for example, but it has. Um, I, I mean, it's a minor motion, you know, it's not a lot of money, but I mean, it, certainly it's the beginning, one hopes of a trend here to look at a different way of being. Um, so Evan, I'm going to turn it back to you. Um, so what were your thoughts when you, when, as this kind of, this uprising happened and, and how did that did that, how did that connect back to um, anti-indigenous racism for you? I mean, first of all, I think it's it's exciting. I think that any time that there becomes this um, this sort of mass uh, level of consciousness around the way that oppressed communities are treated, um, good things can come of it. Um, at the same time, though, you know, I was talking to a group of uh, church folks recently. All you know mid fifties, uh, were probably the youngest age. And they kept commenting that it, for them, it very much reminded them of the protests against the Vietnam war. Um, and, uh, and all of these other pieces. And they're like, it's just kind of the same thing over again, only we did it more violent back then. <laughs> um, and so, so part of me is, is excited. I think that, you know, it's an exciting time to be alive. I watch my own, my own, uh, daughter uh, is 13, which was the same age I was uh, during the Rodney King uh, um, issue in the States. And and I'm watching her get involved and I'm watching her level of consciousness. Um, and for me, it's really exciting. It's exciting to see, um, especially the conversations among the youth that I've witnessed around um, anti-Black racism, really understanding the role that police have played uh, in violence against marginalized communities. And, and the need for systems that do better, right? To take the funding uh, from policing and put it into social services, into better training, um, frontline support people. I think also one of the things that keeps coming up again and again for me uh, is um, a lot of uh, white folks who keep saying to me, oh, but you know, there's more indigenous people incarcerated than black people in Canada. And so don't you feel like like you're just being ignored in some way. And I think that, you know, we need to be mindful that right now, like this is this is the time for the violence and oppression that black people live with to be on the forefront. 
um, and that as Indigenous people, you know, obviously we need to be there supporting and also listening, because I think that there there is still a lot of prejudice within our own communities towards Black communities. We don't necessarily understand their history. We don't necessarily understand the unique struggles that they face, even though they're very similar to the struggles faced in our community. So I think there also needs to be action uh, within our own communities to also to, to do the things that we ask other communities to do for us, to listen, to learn, um, to know when it's our turn to speak and when it's not. Um, that being said, though, I think that, you know, any movement that moves towards the liberation of an oppressed group benefits all marginalized people. And so I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that this is happening right now, obviously, uh, in solidarity with it. I'm also aware that, you know, it's um, it's still quite painful for Indigenous communities as well, because it brings up a lot of the same feelings and stuff that we that we deal with all the time. Um, so our our communities are also, you know, really struggling through this. Um, but it's it's exciting. And I and I hope that, you know, when I'm 70, I don't sit around <laughs> saying, oh, it's the same thing again that we did back when, you know, I was 40. Um, I hope that I hope that we continue to make uh, incremental or even monumental change towards a better world. Yeah, I, I, I want to just uh, share with you, and then I'll go to Mark. Um, so I'm I'm walking past. I won't name their name, but I'm walking past uh, an extremely um, extremely expensive club to join. Let's put it that way: private club with lots of great facilities that nobody I know could afford to walk in the door of that has all of a sudden erected a sign saying Black Lives Matter outside the front of their club, when I'm sure that the number, well, I'm, let's put it this way, there are probably far more Black folk working in the service end of their club than are ever going to be able to be members. Um, there's a, a lot of white guilt and tokenism happening right now. Um, it's You'd have to be blind not to see it. Um, and... Uh, uh, so I, just before I leave you, Evan, I just want to ask, you know, think, while this is, while we're hearing the government saying some good things, uh, we're also seeing the missing and murdered uh, uh, Indigenous women's uh, investigation, like, go by the sides. We're, we're seeing uh, the, the government still, you know, fighting with Indigenous over funding in courts. Um, you know, wh what do you, how do you react to that, Evan, before I leave you? And I'll, I'll ask the same thing of Mark, so be ready. <laughs> I mean, I think that I think as Indigenous communities, we know that often the government is full of a lot of talk and not a lot of action. Um, I think that Trudeau has has perfected this in many ways, um, and I think that uh, you know, I, I think that there's this system at play where where we just manage to roll on to the next thing that's trendy and lose what was behind it. Um, you know, like even as we sort of moved into this time of like COVID-19 and isolation and all the challenges facing our communities, um, we sort of moved from like the rail blockades and roadblocks and now we're on to COVID. And then COVID sort of turned into Black Lives Matter. And it, it's almost like we forget the thing that's before it and drop it. And so um, I think that, I think in some ways it works out well for the government when we as activist communities do that and sort of focus our attentions on the next big thing because it allows the last thing to sort of roll through unchallenged. Mark, what when you see this kind of response, uh, what, what goes through your head? Well, um, I think back to my um, mentor, uh, uh, 
Dr. Helen Peterson, Oglala, Lakota, and uh, the way back in the 50s and 60s, she was the first executive uh, um, leader of the National Congress of American Indians. And uh, I once asked her how she became, um, you know, and at one time she was one of the most important uh, indigenous activists in North America. I, I said, what motivated you? She said, well, you know, I was in school and uh, the civil rights stuff was going on and I got involved and I marched and stuff. And at some point I realized our, our communities are, are having the same issues and in some some ways worse. And, uh, and, and it was a kind of an awakening on her part, uh, in which she, and, and I, I'll refer, return to this in a moment, she reclaimed her humanity. And that led her to a political action and organization. And I say this now by way of illustration, I think, of what I think is happening now. When I visit communities, uh, I often have to go through uh, um, border towns. Uh, and, uh, and and the, the racism in those places is so profound, uh, it's so noticeable uh, that, uh, you know, when, when you experience it, it is quite shocking. And uh, indigenous people who experience that day in, day out, they just, uh, I think, out of self-defense had to just say, that's that's what life is. That's how it goes, you know. And I think that what we are in the midst of is an awakening. And uh, I think that what's going to happen in Canada is that Indigenous people are saying we don't deserve to be treated this way either. That we are not animals. And and uh, a, a, the systemic brutalities and insecurities and inequities uh, are laid bare in this, in, the, in both the, the twin events of COVID and uh, Black Lives Matter. And I think, I think that uh, this is going to lead to uh, indigenous people reclaiming their humanity in a very profound and important way. Uh, as Martin Luther King pointed out, and as students of liberation movements around the world have pointed out liberation and, and freedom and reconciliation do not happen because an oppressor wakes up one day and says, you know, we've been kind of bad. We ought to be nicer to these people. And what happens is that a group of oppressed people reclaim their humanity and say, we will no longer accept this. And that creates uh, spiritual forces. This is what uh, Martin Luther King was talking about. It creates spiritual forces that bring change. And uh, I think that it may be slowed down, but it cannot be stopped. And it will, it will change uh, uh, this country and it will change, uh, it will, it will change the world. That, that, I'm not under no illusion that it will, 
that will it will eliminate it. So deep are the structures of the worldwide metastasizing culture of money that the West has brought us. So deep are these structures that it will be a long time before we eradicate themselves. But uh, this is this is the the first nail in the coffin of, of of something that I think is very important. And I hope that I uh, uh, last long enough to see uh, the fruits of it. Uh, if you've just tuned in, you've missed way too much. But the good news is uh, you can always hear this on podcast uh, and uh, in whatever podcast forum you use. So this will be on podcast there. Uh, ad infinitum. You're listening to the Radical Reverend Show. I'm honored to have guests, uh, Archbishop uh, Mark McDonald and Reverend Evan Smith. We're speaking um, really under the umbrella, um, it's a good one, of National uh, Indigenous History Month here in Canada and tying that into, of course, the uprising and other issues too. Mark, before I go back to Evan, um, she had raised this issue of, and you should know it uh, because you were a resistor of it, the Vietnam War protests. I mean, if you go back to the 60s, you know, uh, they were huge. I mean, we thought it was a revolution happening around the world and that the system would be changed forever. And um, so, you know, do you ever, I, I guess, you know, what I'm saying with that and what you sometimes hear when you hear those, those folk who were alive then is a kind of frustration that the promised land is still far off. What do you feel when you hear that? Well, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, obviously, uh, um, I, I um, uh, uh, being uh, so, someone who came out of the, the liberated parts of, of that uh, life and culture, it is a lot like being a, a, a fan of the Minnesota Vikings, you're constantly disappointed. So, um, so, so I think that uh, it, uh, it, it, it there, there was a great difficulty, but I think, it, you know, there, there was a, a lot of naive analysis on the part of what was going on. And, uh, and, and I think there was a way in which uh, uh, the, the white participants in those movements were co-opted uh, by the economic uh, structures that uh, that prevail in this, and I, I I don't think that Black Lives Matter will be co-opted uh, in the same way, and I don't think that Indigenous people will be co-opted in the same way. That those forces will certainly impact them, but uh, this is why I see much more. Hopefulness. There was in the white uh, movements and protests uh, a, a lot of paternalism and uh, a lot of uh, people who woke up one day and said, "My gosh, this might uh, affect my lifestyle." Um, and uh, and and uh, we're really having people who have nothing to lose. Uh, involved in this movement. And I think that's, a, that, that's going to be a big difference. Will it be perfect? Of course not. And, uh, but I, I do think, you know, I, 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 I view it with more hopefulness in the long term than, than, I, than I do, even though, you know, the forces that are trying to co-opt this in a commercial way are, are clearly evident. And, uh, you know, but uh, uh, I think the people at, who are 
exciting are a lot smarter than 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 uh, we were uh, back in the 60s and 70s yeah. I remember the era quite well and um, uh, and speaking to Evans earlier point it was incredibly misogynist and homobine transphobic uh, and racist yes let's name it um, uh, among white activists many of whom ended up on Wall Street or Bay Street yeah uh, I do I do recall. Um, Evan, I want to get back to you and I want to talk about two other things. Maybe we'll start with this one. Um, I mean, one of the things uh, that I think we can't ignore, um, one of the pressures, uh, probably even greater than COVID right now, is the, the doomsday clock of our environment. And Indigenous have been on the front lines of that struggle. Uh, in fact, thank God for Indigenous struggle because um, they have stood where a lot of people can't stand, uh, uh, you know, about land rights, about the, the future of our planet, etc. Um, what are you seeing and hearing now? Because, you know, it's not getting the news. It's not front page news anymore, the environment, but it's still there. Um, and we know that there are Indigenous, particularly in BC right now and other places who are standing up against the same economic forces Mark was mentioning. Um, what's going on, Evan? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, obviously there's uh, Indigenous people, I mean, still on the front lines uh, trying to to stop the bigger projects that are happening. Um, I think that there, you know, I think that land is so intrinsically um, part of our spirituality, of our, of our very being, that um, then in some ways, even during COVID, it, it has become like it, it's evident in the small things that are happening. Um, an example is, um, you know, I know that there are indigenous tree outreach workers working right now. Um, uh, Kathy Sondequay, uh, Nanook Farrell, and they're handing out medicines on the streets to people who are in our homeless encampments in sort of the tent cities that have popped up during COVID. Um, and I mean, you know, they're, they're medicines, they help us stay grounded, but it's also, there are also medicines that have been harvested from Mother Earth that uh, that have been put there by Creator to take care of us, and so so that that in some way is still um, you know that that land based knowledge. Um, we in our house uh, we've been self isolating uh, for the most part, and we have a little flower bed out front, and there's a little bit of sage in it, and the sage like doesn't really come up very good because I'm a terrible gardener and uh, it's not an ideal spot for it. But uh, probably a month and a half ago, you know, I was looking in the garden and saw these sage plants sprouting. And even though it's not many, there's more than last year. Um, and for me, you know, it I, I turned uh, and sent a message to a couple of my friends saying that, you know, the elders tell us that Mother Earth provides what we need. And so if Mother Earth is providing these medicines that won't be harvested until August, which is when sage is harvested, you know, it's, it's a sign from creation um, that the world is not ending right now. Because I think that, you know, at that time, it was sort of the beginning of isolation. And, and there was this idea, like, I think a lot of us just felt like the world was in many ways ending, like we had just sort of hit this wall, right? And, and how long do we go on? And I, th I think especially when we're talking with children and youth, um, you know, this has been really, really hard on them, as hard as it has been on us as adults. It's been incredibly hard to have their social networks disrupted, schools closed, all of those pieces. And so to be able to say to them, but but look, like 
Mother Earth is telling us that, you know, you're still going to have your summer. Like, this is the guarantee that at least until August, when we need to harvest this medicine, this is going to be here. And we're going to use these medicines after they're harvested. So, you know, it extends even further. Um, and so I think that uh, there's been a lot of people, you know, working, uh, even taking time to study, to learn more about medicines, to learn more about the land, um, and to increase that knowledge in our community so that, you know, when we're able to go back out there sort of full force and um, and do the things that we do, our water ceremonies, our full moon ceremonies, um, fasting, like all of those pieces, um, we're ready. And so I think that, that even though we don't necessarily see people on the front lines the same way that we did, even at the beginning of COVID when the rail blockades in Toronto were happening, um, that, that, that movement is still happening. It's just happening, um, you know, in, in the land that we're on, wherever that land is. For me, it's my front yard in Scarborough. Uh, and, and it's happening in our families and it's happening with the knowledge keepers that are within our own families, which I mean, is how our, our knowledge has always been passed on, right? First to, through the families and then into the community and then into the wider world. So. Mark, uh, what's in terms of the environment and, and uh, Evan, of course, touched on COVID as well, but um, it's not front page news anymore, anymore as it was for a while there in mainstream media. Um, you know, the, the rail blockades obviously have ended, but, but also the, you know, the, the resistance to major um, oil and gas projects that are, if, uh, you know, on Indigenous land. Um, what, what's happening and what are you seeing and what are you hearing? Well, you know, I, I think there's always a, going to be a struggle between uh, dealing with the immediate needs of of Indigenous people, which are profound and great, and and and, and uh, the uh, uh, enactment and embodiment of Indigenous cosmology in uh, in in the way in which. First Nations and, and other indigenous communities across the land uh, relate to uh, uh, their, their the pressures placed upon them by the the culture of money, and I think uh, that that is a, a difficulty. But what what I see, you know, uh, I. I spend a lot of my time with indigenous peoples in remote areas, and uh, they live in the cosmology of indigenous people uh, in ways that are profound. Uh, because they are also Christian, people often dismiss them. But the odd thing is that even though they uh, may not be involved in the more uh, traditional outward expressions of their culture, they are still living in the old world. And I think that um, uh, this, uh, uh, the situation of COVID has uh, led to something very profound. Now, I, elders have been saying to me for decades, uh, most of them gone now, that something like this was going to happen and that, uh, that, that it would force people back on the land and uh, and you see that happening in our communities all over Canada. And uh, I think th this is going to uh, fortify the, the, the uh, in, in, in internal uh, uh, commitment uh, to see 
an indigenous way of life on the land. And I, I think that, uh, you know, that we will see a, a greater commitment. I think, you know, to let a little secret, you know, I think that indigenous people would be more involved if they uh, trusted white environmentalists uh, as well as, as white uh, capitalists. You know, it's it's uh, you know there's there's a fear that that you know they will be thrown under the bus uh, by 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 uh, people who uh, see them as the poster children for. Uh, uh, that, to be frank, largely uh, white goals. And that's not to say that there aren't a profound commitment on the part of many environmentalists uh, to, uh, to indigenous life and to the priority of indigenous thought in moving ahead. That, that's, there, there's, I'm, I, I am allies with them, I, I, I adore them, and, uh, and, and, and I feel there are a, a, a great hope for us. But uh, I think the broader movements, uh, you know, react uh, to the, the the need. Uh, I remember a, a Blackfoot guy was telling me, he said, "Yeah, I like those environmentalists. They understand that if you plant a tree, you might have to cut it down someday." And uh, and so he was. What he was trying to say was that uh, um, as these things had shaped by the polarities of, of the broader culture of the money, of money, uh, they often, uh, uh, indigenous interests get caught in the buzzsaw of those politics. And, uh, and I, I, I think what we will see is a, a, very, a very deep commitment uh, enhanced by the experience of COVID, enhanced by the experience of, of our, uh, Racial tensions uh, that that I, you know I, I I trust will will allow indigenous people to live out their way. I would conclude by saying that there is no happy future for the planet in which in indigenous rights are not respected. There is there is there is no. I mean I I think. People ought to just say, okay, but we, indigenous rights are a part of, of, of whatever, a livable future for everybody, you know, and we ought to just go along with it because a quarter of the world's usable land, including the Arctic, is uh, technically in the hands of indigenous people. If they aren't given the right to establish their protocols over these things, we're toast. And, uh, I think the sooner people realize it, that there is no positive environmental future for this planet uh, that does not include a positive future for indigenous people. Uh, they go hand in hand. And I don't think that, uh, th that that is fully realized by any of the broader participants in this discussion, whether they're uh, pro-environment or whether they're pro-money. Thank you, Mark. Uh, we just have a few minutes left. I've, of course, been uh, speaking about uh, the National 
Indigenous History Month here in Canada, but also to, to phenomenal uh, folk, um, Reverend Evan Smith and Archbishop Mark McDonald. Um, I just want to get, uh, just to close, I, I'm going to throw a quote out there. Mark, you inspired me to look at this quote, but it uh, comes from uh, the student movement in 1968 in Paris, who said, let us be realistic, demand the impossible. So with that, as it's kind of been my theme lately, but um, I, what gives you hope? Just if you could briefly answer that question, what gives you hope for the future, uh, Evan? I think what gives me hope for the future right now really um, is the youth. I, you know, I don't, I, I mean, I have my own young kids at home, but I don't spend a lot of time uh, hanging out with youth just because of the nature of my work. And, you know, through COVID, um, I've had to bond a lot more with my teenage daughter. You know, I've spent hours, I'm now on TikTok. Uh, so even my social media has changed a bit. Um, and, but the things that she's showing me and the things that she's watching um, show me that, that her and her friends um, and possibly a reflection of her generation are, are so much more aware of what is going on. And I think that, you know, social media has so much to do with that because we can hear stories from everywhere. Um, but they're so much more aware and there's this hunger for knowledge. I mean, as soon as, um, the, the whole George Floyd thing happened in the States and Black Lives Matter, you know, we, we had to watch, uh, the hate you give and straight out of Compton. And we've been listening to, you know, some eighties hip hop with, uh, some pretty strong messages about policing and stuff. Um, and I think that, you know, her, her desire for that fuels my desire because, you know, as a, as a mother, as a grandparent, I, I, I want a better world for, for myself and for my kids and for future generations. And, and I'm hopeful for that. Um, because I think I've reached that point, even, even though I'm only 40, where my kids are schooling me, right? And, and I think that that's a good place to be at. We have so much to learn and, and the kids are all right. <laughs> Thank you, Evan. Mark, what gives you hope? Well, I, I would echo what Evan said, and I would also say I, uh, um, both through the indigenous prophets and through the biblical prophets and uh, prophets around the world, have said there's a, a, a there's a, a, a new world coming, and, and and it's going to encounter us and. Uh, and they they all said there's fruits of it all over the place. You know, you just have to open your eyes and see, and 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 to to live the values and the ideals and the way of life of that new world that's coming. And uh, I, I I see that all over the place. And ultimately, no matter how much evidence against it, I stubbornly believe that world is coming. And I, I too see it in the youth, and I see it in Black Lives Matter, and I see it in the resilience of indigenous elders and indigenous youth today. So I'm, I, I, I believe in it, and I, 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 heck, I not only believe it, I see it. Yeah. 
Thank you. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you both on the Radical Reverend Show again to those listeners out there. Uh, certainly, you could hear this on many forums, uh, podcasts, and also, of course, on CIUT. Please keep your tweets, uh, emails, Facebook sites. I'm still not on TikTok. I got, I'm inspired, Evan. I'm going to have to do that. Um, and uh, other forums, you could reach me easily. Uh, please let me know what you think, ideas, etc. questions for our guests that I will forward to them. Always happy to hear from you. Until next time on the Radical Reverend Show. Mm-hmm.